welcome to BioChat, a podcast by Apple Technology. My name is Ken Lund, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only AppClonal's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming two of my friends, both MD-PhDs. I have Dr. Linda Hasasri. She is the director of the Genomics Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She is also the chair of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity and an assistant professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. With her, as well as her husband, Dr. Vincent Pereza, he is an attending physician and an assistant professor in the Division of Hospital Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. How are you guys doing today? Good. Wonderful. Thank you for having us. We used to visit all the time when both of us were in the Midwest. You guys have both gone to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for your doctorates, but I know that you guys have very interesting diverging paths to how you it up. So we can start with Linda. I know because we went to college together, we met through a mutual friend and we hung out quite a bit. You were actually an anthropology major. Yes, I did biological anthropology. At some point, you decided to go to Cal State Northridge and do genetic counseling. I lost touch with you for a little while, and then I saw you ended up at UIUC, and you were an MD-PhD. What happened, Linda? (laughs) So I actually was interested in genetic counseling ever since high school. I was pretty dead set on not taking the medical school path at that point because that career seemed more appealing to me and also seemed more financially attainable. Genetic counseling was something that was introduced to me when I was in high school. We did one of those software programs where you could like input all the things that you're interested in and you love and it spits out like a list of careers that it thinks that you would be good at. And interestingly for me, the two careers that came up were essentially a deckhand on like a naval carrier, probably because (laughs) I have the daughter of a veteran and I like cleaning things. I don't know why that was one of the career choices that was recommended for me, but that was hilarious. And then the other one was genetic counseling. And I knew I loved genetics. I had no idea what genetic counseling was. And so I actually read up a lot on it when I was in high school and realized, you know, I really like this career. Like I get to see patients, talk to patients, help them through vulnerable times like pregnancy, like difficult outcomes and so forth, but I don't actually have to manage them. I'm there to support them and I'm there to support the overall clinical team that's taking care of them. I knew that was something that I wanted to do. The prerequisites for genetic counseling are the same as they are for medical school and a lot of the other health professions anyway. And so um, I just happened to have that overlap there. And with biological anthropology, it's interesting. I think you know, Ken, that I love, 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 love mitochondrial DNA. That's one of my areas of expertise. And at that time, that's when a lot of that work was being done. It wasn't being done in the health space. It wasn't until the 90s that we even knew that mitochondrial DNA could cause human disease. It was being used at that time to track lineage and to track like migrations of people all over the earth. And so I was really intrigued by that. And so everything kind of married together (laughs) um, quite nicely to set me on the career path that I then ended up on. Between Northridge and UIUC, you then made a decision, right, to go back to medical school for real? During my training as a genetic counselor, I had the most incredible mentor, um, Dr. Aida Metzenberg, who also was Vince's mentor, too, for his undergraduate research. And so that's how we actually met was in her lab. But she was one of those rare magical creatures who was a Ph.D. level genetic counselor and um, was very big into molecular genetics laboratory research. And prior to um, being the program director at CSUN for the genetic counseling program there, as well as a professor of biology there, as well as a researcher into these rare hereditary disorders, she had actually worked up in Oregon as uh, essentially the position that I have now. She was a molecular genetics laboratory director, and she even dabbled in biochemical genetics too, which is the other thing that I did my fellowship in. And so she really had a heavy influence on me. She noticed that I really, really loved being at the bench. 
I mean, not that I didn't love patient care, but I loved laboratory science just as much. And so it was actually her who encouraged me to go forward. Like we had a lot of um, one-to-one conversations together. And I remember one of the things that she said that really stuck with me at that time was, you know, Linda, you can always do genetic counseling as a PhD like her or an MD or an MD-PhD. So go the furthest that you can. That way you have all career options available to you. Don't limit yourself and then see what that takes you. And so that's how I ended up finally committing to this path (laughs) in the end. I wasn't a very forward thinking in my education and I didn't really apply to many places or anything like that. I was still trying to find myself, really. I knew I was interested in the sciences and I knew I wanted to go to college. And that's um, where I started discovering what I was interested in. And so after graduation, you just continue working in uh, Dr. Metzenberg's lab where you met Linda. And what prompted you guys to just decide to go to UIUC together? Before graduation, I was working in Dr. Metzenberg's lab. During CSUN, I did pretty well. I got a fellowship or a scholarship through the NIH that promoted my research. First, I was interested in medicinal plants, so I started researching plants and animals and going on hiking trips and exploring Mexico. Then I realized I was most interested in the biochemical and molecular aspects of things. And so I started uh, Dr. Metzenberg's lab, and I researched a couple uh, rare disorders there in genetics, under dysplasia and Barth syndrome, diagnosed folks with molecular diseases. I didn't accidentally go into the PhD. I kind of discovered myself throughout college and what I was interested in. During my time at Dr. Messenberg's lab, I realized that all the things I was doing, helping diagnose people through the lab, I really liked science. But I also liked dealing with people and physicians and scientists that interacted with patients and putting that science and medicine together. And so that's why I pursued MD-PhD. Um, and there was a, at least a year ahead of me. She's a, the overachiever. She went to the University of Illinois and her brand Champagne. At the time, it was one of the few places that um, offered a major in anthropology, but also in medicine. So that's why she chose that place. Then mm-hmm. I followed her over there afterwards. So we both had different paths. I did what was more of an MSTP program. Uh, The difference being that NIH-backed MSTPs, typically the PhDs are only in the sciences or things that are, you know, quote unquote, more relevant to medicine. One of the beautiful things about UIUC or University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign was that it was not a traditional MSTP. You could do your PhD in anything. And so I actually started off in anthropology, thinking that I was going to do a PhD in medical anthropology and I was going to be able to do some bedside genetics work, much like a lot of the work that was going on at Cal and other places. But that ended up not panning out. And so I switched PhD programs to cell and developmental biology so I could be closer to the type of work that I wanted to do, get back into the genetics and biochemistry space. And that is how I ended up there. can't imagine how many MSTPs or MD-PhDs are out there, right? But it's a very incredibly hard thing to get into, especially a combined MD-PhD program. Uh, So I did not get into the MD-PhD program initially. I got into the PhD program, uh, and I focused on my PhD first. At the tail end of my PhD, I applied to medical school again because that was my end goal anyway. As I finished my PhD, I transitioned into my MD. Um, I was still doing part of my PhD work while I was in med school, but it was mostly done. It's really awesome the way you guys describe things because you both ended up getting the piece of paper that says you got both degrees, but you did it in totally different ways. And it goes back to the fact that, you know, just progress is not linear because I took several detours before I got into this path as well. After I, I left Berkeley, I did go to Duke for a couple of years and then realized I really don't like to buy pet all that often. That's when we started a family. You met my son when he was very, very young. We have that cute picture. I'm glad that you guys went on a path that you were really passionate about and you found different ways to do it. In terms of your residencies, because after you finish your MD, you you have to like be placed in a program. How did you end up choosing or how was it chosen for you what you would do for that residency? So during medical school, you go through rotations, right? And you, you try to see what you like the best. And at, at that point, people try to choose what is in their future. Not necessarily final choice, but a, 
a good choice for them to springboard from. You know, you rotate through surgery, you rotate through OBGYN, psychiatry, and medicine, and even the subspecialties in medicine like cardiology, nephrology, things like that. I liked all of the subjects. I really did. I struggled for a long time. I even considered being a pediatrician or a surgeon at one point, but uh, realized that I needed more of a vanilla uh, type of uh, specialty where I can add the toppings as, as much as I want. So with internal medicine, it was a good choice for me because I could branch out into other subspecialties if I wanted to. It gave me that flexibility. Other, you know, subspecialties do that too, but internal medicine gave me the greatest flexibility because it focused on diagnosis and treatment of medical diseases, which really, that's what I signed up for. And so um, I started to do internal medicine with an intention maybe to go into a fellowship, hematology, cardiology, or something else that would interest me in the end. But in the end, I decided to uh, focus on internal medicine. Did your residency allow you to also pick a research path that you would undertake with the PhD part of your degree? Because obviously you can still do research science as an MD, but, you know, the PhD is basically like I learned how to answer a question really well. I learned how to design experiments and I want to align it with my clinical interests as well. During the interview process for residency from medical school, I interviewed as an MD-PhD focusing on research and medicine at the same time. I had very good interviews in California, and I was pretty set on going there. And I pretty much had my lab set for me. And then Linda, she'll tell you later, we got an (laughs) offer from Mayo that really we both couldn't refuse. And I didn't even apply it to anywhere in Minnesota. Nearing the end of the interview process, I hurriedly sent applications over to a couple of Minnesota residencies. Yeah, there were only like two here, right? So, yeah. There's some. Yeah. There, there's a, there's at least a handful here. Right. Uh, this was like the 11th hour. The 11th hour. Yeah. <laughs> so I sent it to Mayo, and they said, it's too late, dude. <laughs> it's we're full, and we're done yeah. with, res- uh, with interviews. I sent it to University of Minnesota and a couple more places. Uh, University of Minnesota says, uh, we're full, too. But I emailed them and said, please. <laughs> and they actually gave me the very last interview slot. During that interview, they interviewed me as an MD-PhD and offered me a fellowship at the same time to um, start, where it would be, I, I would do a cardiology or hematology fellowship guaranteed after my initial MD phase. At that point, I said, let's defer that because Linda would, would be in Mayo Clinic, which is in Minnesota, in Rochester. But I would be at the University of Minnesota, which is in the Twin Cities, it's about an hour and a half away, and I like balance. And really, we didn't really know what would happen during all this time. So mm-hmm. I said, let's hold off on that. Yeah, we and, were older, too, and, you yeah. know, wanting to start a family. All those, you know, choices you have to make when you are when you spend so much time in school, right, that the rest of life kind of catches up with you. And especially, you know, I mean, if you are assigned female at birth, there is a limited window <laughs> during which – you can do things like start a, a fa- at least a biological family. And so, you know, that was definitely something that we took into consideration, too. So when I got to the University of Minnesota, I focused plainly on being a physician, which I enjoyed very much. Being a physician actually gave you like the flexibility so that you can move your practice from one institution to the other a little more easily, I hope. That's very true. Yeah, depending on your subspecialty, there's a good amount of physician jobs um, if you're looking, not necessarily in the city that you want, but there w- there would be a job for you. Speaking of this really awesome opportunity, Linda, can you tell me a little bit about your process to get said opportunity? Right now, you you are essentially the director of the genomics laboratory. That sounds big, like big time. Well, as you know, with any lab, it's a team effort, right? So it's not like a, an academic lab where there's just one PI and they are the head of everything. Um, I'm the director of a clinical lab. And so there are a whole separate set of rules and regulations that you have to abide by to do clinical testing and clinical research, right, as opposed to um, basic science research. So I, I am the director of specifically the molecular technologies lab. Um, it's one part of our, our division of genomics. And what my job entails is I get to oversee clinical testing for a whole bunch of different hereditary disorders, as well as tumor testing in the setting of cancer. Because as you know very well, Ken, given your background, a lot of our therapeutic approaches now are driven by the molecular changes that are present in that patient's um, malignancy. And so um, it's really cool work. I love that we're the ones 
that get the answers for the patient. And then the clinical team, of course, or my patient facing colleagues like Vince are the ones who then take care of the patient using that, that information. And so to be a clinical laboratory director, you typically have to do either a PhD now or an MD, PhD or an MD. In the past, it used to only be open, at least in my field, to MDs and MD, PhDs. But what's really cool is they now have PhD only. And I don't say that in order to diminish that at all. I'm just saying that it's now an option to do just a PhD and then you can do a laboratory fellowship where they teach you how to be a laboratory director. And so there are multiple ways to get into the position that I am in now. But yeah, it's very satisfying <laughs> to be, I mean, not quite at the top. You know, we still have a department chair. We still, like I said, it's a team effort to run a lab, but to have the, the general oversight of the area, it's a very rewarding career. I didn't have a lot of this kind of mentorship because nobody mm-hmm. really told me what I was supposed to do. Like when you're start, supposed to start applying for a postdoc before your graduation, because at my point, I was like, I have no idea when I'm graduating. I think I have enough to write a paper and a thesis. And then suddenly they were like, OK, we, you know, you've been here long enough. Let's get you graduated. And I was like, I, I, I should probably apply for something. So at what point in your career did you just decide this is the point where I need to put together the CV? This is the point where I need to throw my name out there, get my references going, start applying to X number of jobs. I I don't know what a good number is, but I imagine a lot of people do at least like dozens to just make sure they have like a backup plan, right? Yeah. Before I go into that, I want to hit upon something you just said, Ken, because I think it is so real especially for people like you and I that we did our undergrad at, you know, a tier one institution. Nobody does give us that kind of career advice, right? Like I had no idea these laboratory careers existed at the time. And if I could go back in time, I would love to have had somebody go back and tell me that, you know, it's not the be all and end all to just get your, I guess, bachelor's degree in whatever sciencey major and then go to graduate school, go to medical school, et cetera. Like there are actual lab careers that you can pursue instead that are equally rewarding and, you know, actually quite well paying too. <laughs> we don't have universal health care in the U.S. And so physicians aren't all paid the same. And you have primary care physicians that work two jobs in the middle of nowhere you know, making the same amount of money as one of my bench technologists does, um, you know, whether that's fair or not is a whole other thing. But this is the kind of advice or transparent information we're not given as undergrads. Like you said, we're not told that here are your career options. Here's how to apply. Here's when to apply. You know, one thing I want people to be aware of is that, again, you don't have to always go to graduate school or another doctorate program after getting an undergraduate degree or master's degree in the sciences. Um, And even if you want to do that, oh, my gosh, a laboratory career is such a fantastic stepping stone to that. Like I always tell my new staff because a lot of them come in like I I don't know what I want to do with myself. I just need a job to pay the bills. And I like science. And I always tell them that. You might decide as you're working then what you want to do. And there are people here to support you in that path. But at the very least, right now, working in this job in a clinical lab, you're getting a solid foundation from which to springboard those next pursuits. Right. Like it just opens up so many doors for you to do that. And so for people who are still questioning what it is that they're truly passionate about and want to commit to for a career, knowing that that could change. A lab job is definitely a a wonderful place to start. And like I said, it just opens up so many doors. It teaches you so many things that are relevant to those other careers that you might want to go into or that further education you want to go into. So in my case, I just had to, I mean, you know me, overachiever, always overpreparing. I had to learn for myself that these laboratory fellowships existed. And as Vince was saying, you know, we were applying to all these places. And at that time, I was I was still under the impression that if I wanted to go into laboratory genetics, I had to do like a residency in either pediatrics, family medicine or internal medicine. And then I had to do a medical genetics fellowship after that. And then after that, a lab fellowship. But it turns out, like I said, the rules change. They have fellowships now that you can just go after with a doctorate degree. And so I got an interview at one of those fellowships in clinical biochemical genetics at Mayo Clinic, which I mean, it is the top biochemical genetics laboratory in the world. And I I was at a crossroads and Vince and I had a lot of talking that we did with one another where um, because they offered me the position. But if I did that, I had to withdraw from the residency match and give up going to uh, clinical residency if I wanted to do that. And so we had a 
a heart to heart because at that point, kind of like he was applying, we were pretty set on going back to California, you know, and the nice thing is applying to primary care specialties. You know, there's many residency programs, especially in the state of California. And so as long as we ended up like hopefully in the L.A. area where all his family is um, or, you know, somewhere in California, we were we were going to be happy. But then that opportunity for Mayo came my way and it's like, oh, no. This sounds like a dream. Like I could just go straight into this fellowship and be a laboratory director when I'm done. You know, what should I do? Like I, I, I'm pretty sure I want this. And so um, in the end, you know, he selflessly was like, no, but this is what you want to do. Go for it. And I'll scramble to see if I can find a, a residency position in Minnesota. So we're at least in the same state. So that's how, again, we ended up um, where we're at. <laughs> Very eloquent speech on like what, institutions should really do in order to prepare this generation of Mm -hmm. new students on their new careers. It's very important that they get the kind of guidance and mentorship that I don't know if it's available anymore because everything just seems so bottom line sometimes. But uh, if you if you get the right connections, the right, right networks and you have the good support from your friends, and, you know, the, the teachers that you meet along the way, the professors, I, I think that that can still exist. So I did have a good set of undergraduate mentors. Uh, I worked mm-hmm. with a gentleman who who is now a professor emeritus, uh, Dr. Bob Glazer, and mm-hmm. he was affiliated with Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And that, that was really cool because you got to work with both the educational institution as well as a, a national government laboratory. And. Uh, he he helped me a lot along the way. It, it needed, even like when I moved to California after Duke, he got me a job. And then after I came back again, he, he was very happy to send uh, applications so that I could get back into industry after like several years of teaching. So I think the mentorship aspect is really something that should be developed. And I assume because you, you are part of the Mayo Clinic and part of academics, you have subscriptions to everything, including cell. Like over the past few months, I've noticed that Cell has been big on inclusivity and mm-hmm. mentorship, making sure that, you know, funding is accessible, making sure that opportunities are accessible. And I think that's a big shift, like where people see, you know, it's not just indentured servitude in your PhD program. You right. have to have balance. Like Vince said, you have to have the right kind of mentorship. You have to have the right kind of training to direct you to how to apply for funding, to shape a manuscript, to do all the other things that we probably had, all all the things that we probably had to learn on our own. As a follow-up, I I know that you now work at Mayo Clinic, uh, same institution. Do you guys actually get to work together in a professional capacity? We actually do, and Vince can speak to this as well. What's really fun is that there is this misconception out there that MD PhDs only do research, that they don't do patient care like Vince does, or if they do patient care, that's all they do, which is not true. Like you are always both uh, a PhD and an MD or an MD and a PhD. So Vince and I actually do get to work together on research projects, and it is super cool (laughs) because he essentially brings me the patients and all of the clinical information and background on those patients and I bring him the laboratory tests and the data that that is how we get to work together or function together and it's a a really fun partnership (laughs) to be able to have that you know bench to bedside as they often call it you know link to one another I I totally agree there's a balance to everything a lot of MD PhDs choose one or the other but in, in the end you've gone through so much of that time and that training it's in your DNA it's you can't really let it go, right? You think like a physician, you think like a scientist all the time. You know, when you're doing clinical work, you kind of miss the bench work, but, you know, not to that extent. <laughs> and when you're doing the bench work, you kind of miss the patient care. Um, and you try to find a balance to that. And we kind of are each other's emissaries um, and take a peek into each other's world and step into it every once in a while, which is very nice. You have a lot of trainees. Can you tell me a little bit about how your training strategy is, your philosophies, uh, what kind of folks come to you, and any very interesting challenges and success stories that you might have had? 
most of my training really is I, I teach uh, medical students and residents. I get a handful of medical students a year. They're great. They're early in their career. Most of the um, residents I work with are actually senior residents. I'm the unit director of one of the medical units there, and we focus on senior resident education, which means it's um, basically at, or their last year of their residency. And they're there basically to learn how, how it is to be a hospitalist or what I do. Um, so they take care of patients and they're really at that point full-fledged doctors. They essentially just guide them from the background and um, help them through things. There are certain things that, you know, you don't learn in medical school that I try to teach them, like how the hospital works. And because in order to be a hospitalist, you need, and I need to know how the hospital works. And so... Those are the main things they need help on, and I'm just there to be a safety net just in case. My philosophy is let them fly, and then if you see trouble, try to intervene as nicely as possible and as discreetly as possible. They, they figure it out. They're all very bright at that point. And for me, similar to Vince, I work with a variety of, of different t- uh, trainees year-round. So I have undergraduate interns that come in um, either as they're doing a, a bachelor's in like clinical laboratory science or a master's in like molecular pathology. Um, these are students who are interested in careers, um, again, in laboratory medicine. And so I have those. Um, I also have the occasional medical student. Um, I have the occasional graduate student <laughs> come through the lab as well, wanting to learn what a clinical laboratory is all about. And then I have um, most of the time I have um, pathology residents, pathology fellows, as well as fellows in what's now known as the Laboratory Genetics and Genomics Fellowship, where I'm training PhD, mostly PhD, only candidates, again, to be laboratory directors like me. We do occasionally get MDs and MD-PhDs for that same fellowship. And so that's the the breadth of <laughs> individuals that I have year-round. We also have um, residents from other specialties and fellows from other specialties rotate through our lab as well. So I'm responsible for teaching them, too. So we have pulmonology. We have hematology, oncology. We have pharmacists even come through, too. And so I think that really speaks to, like, molecular genetics touches so many. Molecular biology in general, right, Ken? Like, it it touches everything, every field, like no matter what specialty you're in in medicine, for instance, you're probably going to encounter somebody with a genetic syndrome or cancer, right, at some point. We're becoming so uh, ubiquitous, you know, throughout both science and medicine. And so over time, I, I, I see more and more specialties being added to my docket of <laughs> trainees to teach. And I love it. My philosophy is to get them excited about what they're doing. Um, you know, for our, our bench techs in particular, it's really easy to feel removed from patient care and the patient experience because you're just working with these tubes of clear liquid, right? With a DNA precipitate in it. Um, it's hard to remember that there's a patient on the other end of that too waiting for a result. And so, um, a lot of what I do is I tap into that passion of this is what that patient is being worked up for. Like this is the diagnosis that their physicians suspect that they have, for instance. And it's up to us to get that answer. Right. Like without that diagnosis, they can't come up with a treatment and management plan for that patient. And so um, the pressure is on us to get that answer, to get the correct answer. Right. And to get it out in a timely fashion. I also like to, again, appeal to whatever their um, individual niche is or area of expertise is. So obviously, if it's a pharmacist who's coming through, I'm going to really hit the pharmacogenomics tests heavily and get them excited about that, because those are the ones that they're going to order and or interpret. Right. When, um, you know, figuring out what medications to give a patient and at what dose, et cetera. Um, if it's a hematology oncology fellow, they're going to be more interested in the cancer testing, right? And how we use molecular genetics to classify different types of tumors, what therapies or targeted therapies they will or will not respond to, et cetera. And it sounds like you are immersing yourself in all different avenues of biosciences uh, with what you're doing now. And that's probably like one of the coolest ways that you can continue to be, be a part of science is knowing that at any moment a new problem uh, with that requires a new solution is going to come up and you're the people best equipped to do this like with Vince you're in internal medicine you could basically see whatever kind of patient you want mm-hmm. and then you you continue to have that level of diversity with your profession and Linda you obviously have that laboratory and uh 
Yeah, with the story that you're telling me, it sounds like a really cool job. And I'm, I'm glad that you decided that this was the path for you because it sounds like you're just extremely happy and fulfilled with what you're doing. In terms of straight up research, because you are a professor, both of you are, do you have like certain research topics that you're particularly passionate about that you would like to talk about? So a lot of my research nowadays is focus on quality improvement projects. I'm, I'm not incredibly passionate about those, but, you know, <laughs> but, but, but we do those a lot. The things that I enjoy most are the things I do with Linda and the research she does. Um, there's a lot of things that I miss being a full-time PhD is having the access to resources and technology and the laboratory. And she, she can help do that. Uh, one example was, um, a study on fluoroquinolones. Uh, fluoroquinolones are a kind of antibiotic. They work with DNA and, um, they basically cut DNA into pieces, right? We, we were interested in fluoroquinolone toxicity. And, um, one of the things is that it affects DNA. And we wanted to link that with clinical and laboratory, and Linda uh, and I collaborated with that aspect. Uh, we had some fruitful results. I feel like given your given your PhD work too, you're still very much interested in like coagulation, hemostasis, right? Things like antiphospholipid syndrome. Like there are definitely, I mean, you are a jack of all trades, and that you can cover. I mean, you have not even you can you have to cover every single type of patient that could come your way because that is exactly what you get <laughs> on your service. But despite that, I still feel like you hold true to your roots. You you still like a lot of molecular genetic stuff like we we did in um, Aida's lab and that you still like a lot of uh, heme stuff, given what you did in Morrissey lab at UIUC, right? Yeah, there, there's, you know, there's a lot of things to do in medicine and you can get overwhelmed with everything there and you pick and choose what you like. Um, and there are certainly things I like more. With antibiotic resistance being as crazy as it is right now, uh, is there a different strategy that we can use to just protect ourselves from bacterial diseases? Just don't get sick. <laughs> yeah. Avoid hospitals. <laughs> Avoid antibiotics until you really need them. Wash your hands. Make sure you're given the appropriate antibiotic as well. Yeah. yeah. Prevention is key. And finish your treatment course. Yeah. <laughs> get vaccinated. <laughs> you're lucky or unlucky. Folks that in general, get the multi-drug-resistant organisms, if we're being serious, usually are um, associated with hospitals, meaning mm-hmm. that they're chronically ill and are frequently in hospital buildings, and they're, in a way, immunosuppressed, and mm-hmm. so they're more susceptible to multi-drug-resistant organisms. There are people in the population that get multi-drug-resistant organisms based on their habits and the illnesses they go through based on their pathology. If you get recurrent urinary tract infections, for example, you're going to go through a lot of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And as you go through a lot of antibiotics, um, you're going to harbor resistance. And yeah. Eventually, you're going to get more and more multi-drug resistant organisms. So in general, prevention is key. You try to be healthy as you can. Wash your hands. And for Linda, because you are essentially like a central hub in Mayo Clinic, and there there are a couple of questions that I have. One is that I've always thought of the Mayo Clinic as a hospital, but you keep talking about like graduate students and undergrads even. Is it actually like a university as well? Like when you graduate, do you say I graduated from the Mayo Clinic? Well, I've never actually thought about that, but... uh yeah, it's surprisingly not um, as well known because Mayo has such a reputation, right, as being this premier medical center. So we have, of course, Mayo Medical School. We have the Mayo School of Graduate or the Mayo Graduate School and the Mayo. So there's a Mayo Clinic. I think it's called School of Health Sciences or Graduate School of Health Sciences. I apologize. I can't remember the full acronym that offers a variety of degrees. Um, the only undergraduate, not even undergraduate degrees, um, there are certification programs for undergraduates who want to go into um, laboratory medicine, for instance. Um, there are a variety of master's and PhD programs that are all in fields that are related in some way to health sciences and or therapeutics. Here. So yeah, so you, you can get your PhD, <laughs> as some of my colleagues have actually, from Mayo Clinic. Or you can get your CLS, you know, uh, certification, et cetera. As the director of the genomics laboratory, you're a hub. So that means you actually get to collaborate a lot with really intense projects where there are like 500 people on the paper. So are you one of those 500 people a lot of the time? 
Yeah, a lot of the times I am. And yeah, you're exactly right. I do collaborate with a lot of people in the basic sciences that are looking to do more translational work. And then I collaborate with a lot of clinicians who are hoping to do more translational or even basic science research. Um, and again, I provide the lab and I provide the laboratory expertise in those cases. And they bring everything else. <laughs> But at this time, like, while you're a support facility, you you don't actually do research direction of your own anymore, huh? I do, interestingly. Um, I don't have oh, my own, wow. you know, lab, but we actually do have a number of staff, at least in my department, who are 50-50 split. So they do 50% wet bench research, and they have their own dedicated lab space, and then they do 50% clinical work. I'm quote-unquote 100% clinical, but I still dabble in a lot of research. And I think the beauty of being a clinical laboratory director as opposed to a, an academic lab is that I um, get to do research because I want to, not because I have to. So I'm not beholden to NIH or any grant to do the work that I do because the work that I do benefits our patients, benefits our department. And so they will pay for a lot of that. That being said, we have a lot of um, facilities on the Mayo Clinic uh, campus like our Advanced Diagnostics Laboratory, which I call our playground. Um, it's really cool where you can submit proposals and if they fund it, you get to use their staff and equipment to answer your question. And so I've had projects in that space where I have an idea. It's not quite enough to make it to to a clinical test. And so that is then the space that I can go to to see, is this actually something that's going to pan out or not and be something useful to our patients in the end? And then if it is, it can then go from that space to my clinical lab for test development. So a lot of my research is related to not just um, the genetics and epigenetics and biochemical basis of a lot of, you know, hereditary disorders or, you know, again, uh, mutations in cancer. It's related into how can we make better tests. Um, a big part of my job is developing brand new clinical tests. And so I get to research the different methods. Um, we get, we have full-time developers who work on vetting those and then bringing them up to par with what a clinical lab requires in order to perform testing consistently on, a, you know, every single patient. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> it sounds extremely cool. I, I guess I'm slightly jealous, except I don't really want to pipette anymore. So <laughs> I don't have to pipette. Plus, our techs well, don't have true. to pipette that much either. we got robots for that now, right, kid? Come on. <laughs> that, that is true. Like, uh, there, there are a lot of things, yeah, that can be automated. And I was very lucky to have an automated platform when I was at the University of Chicago to do like my very large scale study that became my thesis. We, we still have a couple of papers out there that still get like citations every year. So there's a legacy like you might not know me like after I'm gone, but I'm in, I'm in the literature. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's really cool. Uh, I'm glad you got as, to graduate without carpal tunnel syndrome or any other repetitive stress injury from pipetting all the time. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually why I had to leave the lab is because like, it just started to hurt, uh, oh, not no. from my graduate school, but when I was working in an industrial setting, we were doing like a lot of process development. And so I had to help like work up quality control and production procedures. And I had to train folks on how to do things. And during the pandemic, which is sort of still happening, so it hasn't gone away or anything like despite whatever people say yeah we had to produce like leaders upon leaders of enzyme to fulfill the orders for testing kits and you uh, were for pipetting all of that Oh my. Uh, we had to do some manual pipetting for a few, but a lot of it was, in fact, automated. But during production, there was a lot of manual pipetting that needed to be done because we needed to prepare samples for quality control, like in-process quality control and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, now um, it's actually a full time job. I think people don't realize that that's another laboratory career, too, that's out there. Like we so uh, my laboratory has some of the most complex. Auto actually, it does have the most complex automation in all of my department. And so we actually have a full time automation team, although they're trained in life sciences. So they get what the tests need and why they're being done. Their full time job is programming and troubleshooting the robots and coming up with all the complex protocols those robots have to execute in order to perform a clinical test. And it's just like mind blowing that 
wow, this is something you can also do, too. Like everybody has this stereotype of, you know, um, molecular biologists as being kind of like what you described. We're just slaving away at the bench, like pipetting in the 96 well plates or, you know, we're setting up culture dishes or culture flasks and then we're performing PCR or whatever sequencing afterwards. But no, it's so much more complicated than that. We have automation teams. We have bioinformatics teams, right, whose full time job is to make sense of the data that we generate, too. We have education specialists who focus on training the technologists and make sure that they're competent, right? We have quality specialists that make sure we're beating all the regulations that are required of a clinical lab. We have technical specialists who don't do bench work and they solely focus on analyzing and interpreting the data. We have variant curation scientists who, if you find a genetic variant, their full-time job is to look up the research behind that gene, behind that variant, right? And figure out, is this actually relevant to the patient or not? And so, I mean, like I said, lab medicine is where it's at. (laughs) Just the career variety. Um, I had no idea, like I said, you know, as an undergrad, I wish I'd known. Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up because like there's a lot of, especially with artificial intelligence and a lot more stuff being automated. It's kind of cool that you say all that because you actually need a team to oversee the automation. Like the automation is actually going to repurpose your workforce to do something else with their time. And then they can be retrained and be better fulfilled without having to like kill their hands all the time. Right. Exactly. So so there's nothing actually wrong with automation as long as you you put in the effort to retrain your staff. Right. Or AI. I'm so happy you brought up AI, too. Right. Because, again, more and more of medicine, more and more of science. I mean, it's moving towards relying on AI, um, you know, to do what humans can't. Mostly that, you know, we can't work 24 seven for no pay, (laughs) no food, no water, no shelter, et cetera. And in the laboratory space, I mean, what we're able to accomplish with it, what we're what we're building right now with it, uh, it's also so cool. And so I guess being in lab medicine, I'm, I get to partake of that as well. And so now we're coming up with AI algorithms that can make sure, again, that every patient gets the same diagnosis. It's not dependent on which pathologist, for instance, is looking at that slide, what they call it. Or it's helping with your variant interpretation and in genetics. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's so cool. It's the future. The future's here. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of your personal future, uh, tell me a little bit about the kids. I've never actually met them, but I'm, you know, happy that you guys uh, have two uh, bouncing little boys. <laughs> Yeah, they they are a handful. <laughs> I mean, as you know, having two working parents in the in the careers that we do is not easy. Um, we have been blessed with um, Vince's parents or my in-laws um, were such amazing help and support, especially when they were really little. Uh, we could not have done it without them, for sure. Um, they helped raise them. Um, but uh, it it's it's a constant challenge. Of course, nothing in life really prepares you for being a parent either. <laughs> there is no graduate school program or degree that you can get in that. And so a lot of it is, of course, trial and error, trial by fire. But um, it, it it's also really rewarding. They are they definitely keep us on our toes. And it's really fun to see just the personality differences, for instance, between the two. <laughs> and it's like, oh, OK, that one definitely got that from you. Must be genetic or <laughs> that one's definitely more like you. But um Yeah. We love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we hope they and love I us. Know, oh, I, I think they <laughs> most likely do. You guys are awesome folks. I, I know that you probably work a lot, not because you have to, but because you want to. But uh, during the times when you're not working, what do you guys do for fun now? So I work as a hospitalist. Uh, and that Part of that is continuity of care. I have to work seven days a week, but then I get seven days off. And so I, I switch off seven days on, seven days off. So on my days off, you know, if I'm not catching up on paperwork or helping with research, uh, I just try to relax and find balance. Uh, one of the things that helps me do that is uh, I try to restore um, vintage arcade and pinball machines. And I also play some some games as well. So that's what I do. Yeah. So you guys have probably like a Donkey Kong machine and a Galaga machine and the Frogger machine, like. Actually, yeah, we kind of do. <laughs> he's being very humble, Ken. I should I, I should put in the chat a link to the video of his arcade that he's put together in our basement. Go ahead. Keep going, Vince. No, yeah, I have several arcade machines from the 70s and all the way through the early 2000s. Really just machines that, you know, um, 
I, I grew up with and as Linda and I were dating, um, we played together. Um, a lot of these machines are from my childhood and, you know, my days in high school and college, but a lot of them are also demanded by Linda. Um, <laughs> I didn't demand it. I just enjoyed playing cause, them. Because <laughs> she, she wanted certain games in there. So. Oh, that's true. Never mind. That's right. I said that if you're going to put together an arcade, I have to have the Dance Dance Revolution. So, sorry. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> so, um, yeah, every machine is really, you know, it is an investment and time to refurbish them and you know, make make them whole again. And also the space that they take up. So, very selective mm-hmm. about all those machines. Yeah. Do you have a very large basement or are you actually opening up a facility so that kids can play these machines and maybe you can make a few books on the side? Uh. <laughs> I have a moderately large basement and enough to hold at least at least 30 cabinets um, right now. And some are bigger than others. So I probably have about 30 cabinets down there in the basement. And you should come one over. Pitfall. <laughs> yeah, and you should come over. I help my my friend who um, owns an arcade and owns a vintage video game store and vintage toy store. Really, it's a dream. I can live vicariously through him owning an arcade. I help him out. He helps me out with, with everything else. And really, it's very enjoyable. And I know, Linda, you used to have a lovely little dog. He's probably passed on by now. Yes. And I, I'm sorry, but uh, did you get other dogs that you like to train and do the competitions anymore, or do you not Oh, you remember, yes. I yeah. was a hardcore dog mom that loved competing in agility with my dogs. Um, right now, no, because I cannot guarantee that my kids will not permanently traumatized <laughs> any pet that we were to have. And so um, we currently do not have any fur babies. Um, I, I asked them both to wait until they're older and can actually, you know, maybe pitch in and help <laughs> with those, with those pets before getting them. But um, it's something that I would love to, you know, potentially go back to maybe when I'm retired. I feel like it's, it, it's too hard to do now with the job and with the kids, but I've found more boring hobbies <laughs> to pick up. In the meantime, too, like, I mean, you're looking at the office in the background here. You know, I love interior decorating or interior design. I love playing whatever video games Vince puts in the arcade. I'm not good at any of them, but I just enjoy <laughs> playing them. I do enjoy gardening as well. Um, really enjoy cooking. Even more so, I enjoy eating <laughs> whatever's being cooked and just trying new foods. We we like whiskey. Oh, yeah, that's true. I've never yeah. thought we'd be hard liquor fans, but here here we are. Yeah, just living life to the fullest, uh, both professionally and personally. Is there anything else you think an aspiring doctor or a researcher should know as they pursue the next phase in their in their career? In Mayo Clinic, we try to focus on three shields, right? That's our logo. Um, clinical care or patient care, education and research. Really, those are, for an MD, PhD, those are really important in our lives professionally. Um, those three things will follow you after your training. You'll enjoy it. You'll have a fulfilling life if you continue doing that. Really, they should add a fourth shield, which is, you know, balance, family. And really, as you go through your career, just think about how you want to live your life and how you find your balance. You know, your career is there, but in the end, it's a job. And family is important, and living life is important. Yeah, my advice would be the same and also... Um, kind of like what you were touching upon earlier, Ken, mentorship is so important. Um, it's okay to take a few detours or more. It's okay to not really know what you want to do because you're passionate about everything and anything. Um, it will come with time. As you and I have both experienced, you know, you will eventually, through the years even, realize, ah, okay, this is the career that I want, and this is the path to get there, and it doesn't have to be a straight path. In fact, some of the most successful candidates, um, probably as you and I have seen and can speak to, too, are ones that are off the beaten path. They've had other experiences um, before pursuing that additional advanced training, and they bring, they are enriched with all of those experiences, and they bring all of that experience and skills and just ways of thinking that somebody who just went straight from, you know, undergrad to graduate school to postdoc to academic position, for instance, or straight into industry may not necessarily have. And so don't look at it as detours, right? Look at it as these are these are one more step or it's another foundation in your journey and in that path and, and enjoy that journey 
<laughs> because that's that is so important to getting to that destination. And oftentimes that is what makes you who you are. Right. Not the destination, not that final degree or certification behind your name. Um, so be fearless. Explore. Dabble in a little bit of everything if need be, because you don't often know what you truly love until you actually get down and dirty and do it. Right. <laughs> so instead of thinking about it, just dive right in. And you'll get there, especially if you have a good mentor to support you. Um, one other thing I want to point out, and I'm, I'm sure you could speak to this as well, Ken, to um, Vince can as well, is, um, you know, your graduate school mentor, a lot of people think um, or have this notion that I have to be in this brand name lab, right, with this Nobel laureate mentor, and that's going to get me places. And that is true to an extent, right? Like the, the place that you train at and the name that you train under that, you know, that senior author on your publications, it can open doors for you, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to have a good education experience, right? Like one of the things that I am very proud of and and happy in the end, though it wasn't without its obstacles, of course, is that during my graduate training, I had an untenured PI who is not very well known in her field. And the beauty of that was she let me do whatever I wanted. Like a lot of graduate students, they go in and there's already a postdoc that you're going to be paired with. And here's the project that you're given. She let me propose my own project. She let me go after funding for my own project. And when I got that, I got to do it. And I feel like that kind of um, learning experience is, I mean, it it really equipped me so much more for all of the other training and hardships that I would then encounter, you know, academically and professionally than I would have had I just taken that straight path. And so if you find a good mentor, stick with them, right? Don't pay too much attention to, again, the brand name, the, you know, oh my gosh, are they tenured or not? I mean, okay, yes, that's, some oftentimes important, right, for the stability of where you're going to do your training. But like I said, be fearless. If you found a good match, you're going to succeed anyway, and that person's going to help you get there. Well, thank you once again for hanging out with me on BioChat, Linda and Vince. I hope to see you in person one of these days and tell the kids I said hello, even though they have no idea who I am. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having us. This has been a conversation with Dr. Linda Hasasri and Dr. Vincent Pereza. And we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of Adplanal Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Ken Monk. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on adplanal.com, where you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity for any comments or to inquire about AppClonal's quality products and services, please send a message to service at AppClonal.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.